Our first scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of the first letter of Peter, found on page 220 in the New Testament of your Pew Bible. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the Gospel according to John, continuing in the 14th chapter with verse 15 and following. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. In the spaces between the words, O Lord, may we hear your voice. For you fill all things, even when we are open our hearts. To the glory of Christ, amen. The story is told of an economist who is walking across a meadow getting some exercise one afternoon. And he looks up into the sky and he sees a hot air balloon gradually descending towards him. The balloon stops descending at about 200 feet up in the air, and one of the passengers of the balloon calls down, Excuse me, sir, but we can't get a GPS signal. 
could you tell us where we are? And the economist looks up and says, you are in a wicker gondola suspended under a hot air balloon at about 200 feet altitude. The guy in the balloon shouts over, you're clearly an economist. How do you know I'm an economist? Because your information is accurate and worthless. <laughs> Then you must be in marketing. How did you know we were in marketing? Because you're still in the same predicament and you're blaming me. <laughs> and of course, as a preacher, I know you could pretty much make exactly that same joke about theologians, right? Maybe accurate, not sure it's useful. Scholastic theologian Thomas Aquinas in 1209 in his Summa Theologica has a rather lengthy discussion on whether or not angels can occupy the same material space. I'm sure that concerns you, right? To which, during the 17th century, the Reformed theologians said that the Roman scholastics were debating how many angels could dance on a needle's point. Now, we've heard it is how many angels can, can dance on the head of a pin. The original one was how many angels can dance on a needle's point, because the way it was pronounced, it sounded like needless point. little pun there. Even... Even theologians during the Reformation told dad jokes. And I'll confess that the history of the church is filled with examples of our attempts to provide absolute precision and detail given to the faithful, lest you err in your understanding. Meanwhile, most of it seems to be of little practical use to help you find your way. Never mind how you can get along with your neighbor, it's important that you understand the logical necessity of the virgin birth, given what we taught you earlier about original sin. Logical detail is what the church calls cataphatic, cataphatic theology. Cataphatic theology, which comes from the Greek meaning to speak with certainty. Think of a catechism class where you learn the formulas to be able to speak with certainty. We in the Western church, particularly Protestants, have long ignored the other half of Christian theology. That is apophatic theology, cataphatic and apophatic theology, which comes from another Greek word which means to say no or to consider the unspeakable dimensions of our faith in God. Apophatic, unspeakable dimensions of our faith. It's popular in American Christianity to insist on cataphatic understanding, transcending apophatic experience. The important thing is that you say all the right things about Jesus and about salvation, and about the Holy Spirit. If you don't get your equations right, then you may not be a real Christian. 
even if you're one of the nicest people I know. But on the other hand, in every other area of life, it are the unspeakable things that actually drive most of our understanding. Consider today, Mother's Day. Today to express our love for our mothers. By the way, the founder of Mother's Day wanted it to only be about mothers who had passed on, that it was kind of a memorial day for mothers. But literally the floral industry, this is true, the floral industry decided if we also did living mothers, we could sell a lot more flowers. And so the woman who founded Mother's Day as a memorial to her own beloved mother spent the remainder of her life protesting against Mother's Day because it had become so commercialized. And when she finally passed away, the floral industry in New York City paid for her funeral. It's a day to express our love for our mothers. The complexity of that day, however, arises when there is a tension between the love we instinctively have as children, love that we have in our hearts for our mothers, and those who unfortunately have had experiences with their mothers that are somewhat unlovable. That tension between what is deemed as natural love and the unloving reality has resulted in several thousand billable hours for more than one therapist. Right? Romantic love, on the other hand, love between two adults, is experienced as a, a little more tenuous. Right? In couples counseling, one may say to the other, I love you. And the proclamation of love in the context of that counseling session is sometimes reasonably followed up with a question. What do you love about me? That cataphatic clarification. Give me content to why you were saying you love me. But that same challenge in the relationship between a parent and a child is a little less reasonable. When a child comes up and says, I love you, mommy, it would be very bizarre for mom to turn to that child and say, and what do you love about me, dear? In fact, I would suggest that if that's how your mother responded, you have an opportunity to provide several billable hours to your therapist. Our love for mom is apophatic. It is not defended or defined by intellectual words, by reason. In fact, when it is questioned, it becomes catastrophic. And I would suggest that our love for God arises out of that same incomprehensible space. When Jesus tells his disciples to love, he didn't explain why they were supposed to love God. He merely said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. He merely told them that if they kept that commandment, that would be a demonstration of their love for him, particularly if they loved one another. Sounds a little bit like Mother's Day, right? How many times has your mother told you, 
I don't need a gift for Mother's Day. I just want you to get along. Right? Yeah, some people are like, yeah. no, that's okay, Mom, I'll get you a gift. Notice how a little theological education happens here. In fact, the relationship in Christianity with God is parental, not theological. Jesus says in John 14, I will not leave you orphaned. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. Likewise, in the passage from Peter's letter, he tells the faithful that they should eagerly do what is good. Because doing good is a demonstration of our love for God. It is apophatic. It is experienced in a non-logical place. It's not that there's no place for understanding. In fact, Peter writes, always be ready to explain to anyone who demands of you an accounting for the hope that is within you. But what you are explaining is the hope that is pre-existent to the explanation. Our job is not to reason ourselves or think our ways into hope and faith. It is to hope from which resounds a desire to understand. St. Augustine said it a thousand years before the angels were dancing on the tip of a needle. Faith seeks understanding. It is our love of God that moves us to desire to comprehend. Now, it's going to be a little odd for somebody to ask you later today, what did the preacher say? And he, the response would be, he gave an extremely long explanation as to why our faith should not be founded in explanation. In effect, he told us that we're in a wicker gondola suspended under a hot air balloon 200 feet up in the air. I can suggest that the preacher talked about how our love for God, like our primal love for our mother, requires no explanation. Or as John wrote in one of the letters before he penned the Gospel of John, we love God, because God loves us. It is in our experience of love that we actually know how to love. Not because it suddenly makes intellectual sense, but because it is apophatically true. It's experiential. It's not logical. Which brings me to evangelism. How it is traditionally articulated by the church and how it was actually experienced by the first Christians in the New Testament. When I tell you to go out and evangelize your neighborhood, that very phrase makes you wonder if you wandered into the right church, right? Evangelize my neighborhood? Oh, I don't think so. Evangelize? I can't evangelize. That means answering people's questions, right? with a Christianity reasonably designed. I've been taught that evangelism is all about answering questions. How could a loving God permit evil? Why does God send people to hell? How am I supposed to believe in a virgin birth or a man raised from the dead? 
If Jesus ascended into heaven and is supposed to return the same way, what's going to keep him from being burned up in re-entry? How many angels can dance on a needle's point? Nowhere in the New Testament is anyone instructed to understand with wisdom and discernment and clarity and thereby by that clarity convince the world. No. The faithful in Scripture were given the straightforward, unreasoned, and perhaps unreasonable command to love one another. Why? Because the unloved are in desperate need to be convinced that they are lovable. We do not reason or argue or persuade or browbeat others into the kingdom of God. We simply and practically love them to let them know that they are already dwelling in God's kingdom. They just not have yet had the chance to experience that evidence. And our love gives them that apophatic truth. It's not about our convincing anybody. It's about our conviction that everybody is worthy of experiencing the amazing depth of God's love. If I say go out and evangelize your neighborhood, it might have one connotation. It feels a little off-putting because it requires us to memorize answers to all those questions. But if I were to say go out and love the people in your neighborhood, in some way, that sounds a little more difficult. If you could only just get along, I'd rather bring you a gift. The thought comes to mind, love my neighbors? Have you met my neighbors? Yeah. But that's the other half of our Gospel reading today. Jesus promised that in our loving, we would not be orphaned. Jesus said, I'm sending you an advocate to be with you forever. The Spirit of God. Not a logical, cataphatic conclusion, but a real, honest, loving experience. You're not alone. You're loved. Love your neighbor. Amen. And to prove my earlier point that the church is obsessed with cataphatic theology, our affirmation of faith is not the sudden outpouring of a collective breath of joy, but standing to recite the Apostles' Creed. Please stand and enjoy. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Received by the Holy Ghost.